This episode is brought to you by Elo, the Creators Network. You can go to elo.co or download Elo's iOS app in the App Store to explore, discover, and share your work on Elo's ad-free network. And with Elo's new Buy button, you can link a post directly to a product in your shop, empowering you to support yourself through your work and ideas. Elo, empowering creators around the world. This episode is also brought to you by Stocksy, the home of beautiful, inspiring, we won't use the word authentic, but you know what we mean, stock photos and videos. Before you cringe a little at the word stock, this collection is unlike any other library. Every photo and video is highly curated and hand-selected from real artists. So searching on Stocksy actually inspires new ideas instead of sucking the creativity out of you. No more trolling through pages of garbage wasting time. If you're looking to get inspired and are in the need of royalty-free photos or videos that don't suck, check out Stocksy.com and use the promo code TGD to get 20% off your first purchase. This is the Great Discontent Podcast. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, as part of TGD Live, a monthly interview event series. Your lovely and well-dressed host for the night was Tina Esmaker. Enjoy the show. We have a great show for you tonight. Uh, Mitchna and Stacey London are here. Yeah. Don't be afraid, guys. You can clap. You, this is, yeah. Uh, there are no rules tonight, so have fun. Um, well, maybe no phones ringing, as Ben said, but um, yeah, shout, clap, whatever. Uh, I love that. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to bring up our first guest. Um, he is a Brooklyn-based DJ and producer who got his start playing trombone in the New York City bar circuit in the early 90s. In the mid-90s, he spent time in Miami and began to DJ, co-founding Secret Frequency Crew who mixed instrumental hip-hop and electronic music. He debuted his solo LP in 2008, followed by two more full-length albums released on Ghostly International. A regular in the New York City club scene, please welcome Adrian Yin Michna. Thank you. Thank you for coming. <laughs> you said you were going to crowd surf up here. So the what plan happened? was to crowd surf from straight from the back, <laughs> head first, but we... Uh, Assess the situation, and the seats are a little far apart. It's not like in a movie theater, it's easier to do. Yeah, we thought that might not work so well. Um, so thank you for coming out. I'm uh, super excited to have you here, and I want to um, start at the beginning of your story, sure. which is a good place to start. And you, sure. and you spent time in New York and Miami growing up. So tell me, was creativity, like how was creativity a part of your childhood? Were there certain forms that you were drawn to? Um, yeah, I mean, visual, obviously, visuals and audio were always just in my life. Um, I mean, as soon as I saw, like, as soon as I could recognize what records were, you know, I started taking my dad's records, and he had all your your, your classic stuff from the 70s. And I remember just seeing things like, obscure things like Gordon Lightfoot, and being like, you know, just or just liking the name Lightfoot, because it wasn't the Beatles, you know. Um, and then uh, stealing my dad's stereo system, but he and he would brag to me. He'd be like, "Yeah, I bought that off the back of a truck," you know, like in Manhattan, like in the '80s. Um, so things like that, and just learning how his stereo worked more. So taking it apart, you being like, "Okay, tape deck, radio, uh, um, the mechanics of that, um, the speakers, of course, turning them as loud as they can go," you know, for the whole, you know, for hours. Um, and that was even, that, so that was like my first experience with sound. And then I remember in second grade, um, we were all sitting like this and this lady pops into the class and she starts playing violin and she's like, would you like to join the school orchestra? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, and she was trying to like sell everyone on joining the, playing violin and viola. And I was like, I'm in, I was like, I'm in. So th uh, I think it was like third grade, that's where you could start playing um, violin, and I'm sure you, you guys all had a, a similar situation where they, certain grades, they allow you to play certain instruments, and I was like, I want to play drums, and they're like, oh, that's for fifth graders. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yo, I, you know, I just wanted to bang. And, um, and then brass, brass instruments weren't until fourth grade, so I, I started playing, um, I, I was attracted to the trombone, I think, just because it was, I, it was bigger than me, 
and I, um, I just found it like so massive and everyone played the trumpet, everyone played the clarinet and that was just so, why would you wanna you know, do that? So um, yeah, so the, I just pursued trombone and it was kind of just like, it was definitely, uh, I was fortunate. I went to, ele my elementary schools were in Westchester County and the music program was really well and you had your all county and your all state and like, it was just kind of natural. It was like, oh, well, if you wanna learn this piece of music and audition for that and, and just going to auditions becomes like a really kind of fun thing, I think. It's a fun challenge, way more so than like your, you know, your math tests and stuff. Um, so yeah, the, my whole, you know, through from fourth grade all the way up until 12th grade, it was just like whatever music we could get into. And then from there, the real, the real turning point, the major turning point was like ninth grade when I met kids who were not musically trained at all and they were playing like, in rock band, they were listening to like Jane's Addiction and Fugazi, and being like, "Yo, we, um, we rehearse in this garage," and I was like, "What?" And they were like, "They're like, um, yeah, things open from there." Yeah. So you, <laughs> so your interest in music was from a very young age, and it transformed from learning to play instruments at school to DJing later on. How did that transition happen? How did your, how did your interest in DJing? Well, the DJing was always there, but I didn't pursue it. I mean, I, 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 I didn't even know how to pursue it as a kid. It's like, because the equipment was so expensive and all I knew was like borrowing stereo systems from people's houses and turning them as loud as they could go. You know, that's like, that was, how, that was DJing to me. Um, and, uh, and, you know, essentially it starts at house parties when you're, you're at your friend's house and you're just um, playing whatever tape you have, whatever CD you have, and just like, doing it um but so the djing was always kind of like you know hovering on um, my my love for hi-fi but the music thing was really where we thought where we started to figure out oh you can get signed as a band you can get signed to a record label put out a seven inch do a show in the city play mercury lounge you know lion's den and just like get in the village voice like get your name in the village voice in the back um and that was that's what i saw as a career i was like i want to play in a band um and uh, and you know we would always send tapes to all the venues and we played all the dive bars in the in in the city. Was that during high school or was that after? Yeah, you, that was you were like playing around the bar, playing in bars around the city and venues. High, yeah, all high school. High school. Okay. Yeah, and then we did battle the bands and like we're, we were like, oh, we can win money. Like, <laughs> here's your eighty bucks, kid. Like, divided by eight people. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are laughing. The you know battle of the bands. Yeah, yeah that I was recall the best. That. Yeah. So good. Those were the best. Um, so at what point did you, so after high school, did you consider going to college? Were you thinking, no, I'm going to pursue music full time? Like at what point did you make that decision? Well, I was lucky because as a trombone player, you don't have to be that great because you're, because you're just, you're in need. There's a demand for a trombone player. It's like, who's, who's really going to stick that out past the age of 18? Like, so I did. I was like, oh, I'll do it. And, and, uh. And uh, I was, again, I was really fortunate to have some amazing teachers, like one old school, Mo Snyder, he was like super old school cat, you know, he was like, but, you know, the, the type of man who's like 75 and connected to all the teenagers. Um, and so, yeah, he was just like, go for it. He was like, try, he was like, you could go to, he's like any, you know, like I actually applied to University of Michigan and I applied to University of Miami. And um, I got into both, and I got scholar, a scholarship to Miami, so I went there. And um, I was, yeah, I mean, I knew, I was like, I'm not going to, I don't want to be a symphonic trombone player. You know, I was like, I'm going to do music engineering and do studio work. And everyone who um, was in the school of music was kind of, um, you know, had their ear to, like, other things. Um, did you, so, so tell me, I guess, a little bit more about, that transition from you know growing up in New York to going to school in Miami and how did that move influence your output because you went to school for music you're playing trombone that was your thing and then in Miami I know you started to get into DJing much more so tell me a little bit about how that happened well the interesting thing about Miami this is like 1996 there really were not that many live bands I mean there were some Latin bands and there was a couple of kind of goth, uh, you know, there's a definitely a strong, like, goth and EBM scene, EBM with a B. Um, uh, and, you know, people who love Joy Division and that just 
amazing uh, core of that in in Florida in general. And those, so there was a couple of those bands, and then you had Florida in general always had like amazing punk and and hardcore and stuff like um, Newfound Glory and things like that. But and then on the flip side of things. Um, you know, there's no not much room for trombone in, in the genres I just mentioned. But um, on the flip side of things, I mean, I was, su- you know, I was already, bu- I had bought turntables and like, you know, saved up my, my pizza money and um, bought turntables and I had I had a pretty good couple crates of records. And what I didn't realize was the records I had were all like New York records, like Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick and Eric B and Rakim and things you just that are just normal to you you know when you when you grew up here and i brought all these records down to florida and they people like they're like oh you're like the new york dj you know they like label you and i was like i guess so and so <laughs> and like um and then they intru- then of course the interesting thing these i mean they're the like the genres that were coming out of florida at that time were just i had you know blew my mind you know, like um, really glitchy electronic music and electro and Miami bass and like I only I, sure I'd heard of Two Live Crew and things like that, but just the the entire culture of like or car car based music um, music that's made for vehicles. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, and that that of course that just ties into back when I'm like you know an eight year old turning up the volume. Yeah, you're like I've found it. This is what I've been trying to do my Which whole life. Which actually, Michigan had had a great uh, co- yeah m- music for vehicles. I'm from yeah. Michigan. Yeah, right. And you're Detroit, I, I so yeah, yeah. I get no, it. No, there was a Detroit bass scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sure. So you did you finish college and then and then you came back to New York? Is that kind of the trajectory? That yeah. You took? So I, I I stuck. I mean, there was definitely a point where um, I was like, oh, I should drop out of college and just I started DJing in clubs and actually making money and I was like this is ridiculous I'm, I'm actually like making more money than I had not a job on campus like working in the computer lab okay. <laughs> and, like, and I'm like it's like computer lab guy by day and you know <laughs> that could be like a DJ superhero like it, you could do the Clark the Clark Kent you know yeah. changes the printer cartridge Quick change yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so yeah just just um the well the, the really cool thing was about Miami also uh, is I was at University of Miami and a lot of the kids are very obviously very into sports and like they're in this bubble of Coral Gables and I ended up all of the DJ friends I made were kids who grew up in like Kendall and like went to Miami Dade Community College and kids who went to FIU and the arts like came up in all these art schools that I had no idea like they were like even the, the, the art schools there are so amazing and they pull them when they're you know 13 years old um so uh, all those kids who were just like, and when I would bring them to campus to University of Miami, they were like, they were their mind was blown. They were like, this is where the like the the rich people hang out, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, really, uh, um, seeing I, I think seeing the city of Miami, you know, at night. It's a whole other world. Um, and so then when you moved back, were you focusing on DJing or, you know, at some point there was a, you signed on to Ghostly and mm-hmm. released your debut album. Yep. So. So meanwhile, our band e- evaporated. Uh, no, it, our, our band, essentially my high school band was, you know, it was kind of like funk and we had, uh, we had our ska phase, we had our disco phase. We would end every song with a disco jam, just like, <laughs> go, just go. And like, uh, we, you know, it was like, like part of the band again was influenced by like Discord Records. Part of the band was influenced by DJ Shadow, and um, and then at that time, like electronic music was blowing our minds because we were like, how is, how do people make this music? You know, between drum and bass and like, um, and trip hop and like even like what Bjork was doing. You know, it was like, oh, she's singing over beats. Like, how do you make that? How do you do that? So then we were like, oh, well, let's make beats, and. Um, get some singers and we just kept making demos and and that's where secret frequency crew started and then eventually we kept sending the demos to the cool thing in miami there was a ton of record labels at that time like 98 99 turn of the millennium and there's just you know they were all pressing like um just small runs of vinyl and so eventually we um and and the nice thing about miami at that time was some of the labels there were getting uh, like say labels in London were like well what's going on in Miami like the the eyes were kind of on like kids in their bedroom glitching out 
Um, so yeah, uh, it was just a process of slowly releasing like a single here, a seven inch here, a remix here, an EP here. And that's like, that goes from like 90, 1999 to up until like 2005, you know. And then I start, I met um, Sam Valenti who's here and he runs a label called Ghostly International. And, um, and I just started sending him demos and he was, so, he was familiar with uh, some of my work. So that worked out. Nice. Um, so you and then uh, ultimately signed. to Yeah, Ghost you just kept sending demos like, "Hey, I'm remember yeah. me, I'm here." Pretty much, or like, "Here's my new, here's my new stuff." It's you know, I'm shopping it around. Awesome. And then your debut came out in what was it? Two thousand two thousand eight. Two thousand. Okay. Yeah. It was a few few years ahead. Two thousand eight, and so, so yeah. that came out solo because up until then, up until two thousand eight, I'd been working with groups and uh, mostly a trio, a trio of people. Right, and so the, your first solo album came out, and then there were there were some years between your debut and your sophomore album. I think it was about like seven years between, and you were yeah. mainly focusing. Were you working? Was music full time at that point, or DJing? Uh, yeah, or? DJing was has, has been full time since about two thousand eight and nine. Um, honestly, at that time, if if we're gonna, um, I guess the subject was transformation, right? Yes, when, it is. Well, yeah, about. we're going to talk about transformation tonight. That's just kind of the um, I mean, the ether tonight. Between like my first and second album, I I definitely gave a sh like it was my first time. I started writing for some commercials, and I am also I was introduced to some people at ad agencies, and then just that whole world of of uh, hey, you could write music for ad campaigns, web ads, and very. I mean, think about all the formats that are that exist and. Each format needs a, you know, this one's 15 seconds, that one's 30 seconds. So I did that, as, uh, a lot of that as freelance. And then, um, uh, I mean, I wrote music for a film that was shelved, you know. Um, it's like, yeah, right, you know. And, 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 and then later, but which was great, because then later on I wrote, I ended up writing music for another film, and that eventually, now it's going to be uh, in the New Hampshire Film Fest. So, you know, it's like you wouldn't, get to your second score if you didn't write your first score that no one will ever hear. <laughs> um, let's talk about the creative process for a moment um, because I think, you know, you're you're doing, working in the field of music, but I think no matter the discipline we're working in, the creative process, you know, there are some similar challenges when we're sitting down to make something. So how do you get started when you're sitting down to write a track or compose something? For me, um, I'm constantly listening to music, and usually I'll hear, I, I start to put everything at, in pockets. So, you know, and what often happens now is, like, you hear a new song, and you're like, oh, they're they're referencing, you know, like, um, Tangerine Dream, you know, and you're like, okay. And then um, a, lot, a, a lot of times I hear a new song, and I'm just, like, listening to the thing that creatively that I start with, I always start with bass and drums, and that's the first thing I analyze. And um, so even like the new weekend song that just came out and I'm like, oh, it's, you know, it's got kind of like these pokey arpeggios and it's got like a kind of a, the bass is definitely like it's for, for Daft Punk. It's like they add a little more sub bass than they usually have. Um, and uh, the, yeah, sometimes I'll just take that. I'll be like, but this song that their version's too fast. I'm going to take, I'm going to try to do my version. That's like way slower. When you're writing, do you take, like many times, I've heard people give advice that, you know, it's just to say, find inspiration outside of whatever field you're working in. Um, so do you, do you draw inspiration from other sure. arenas? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, obviously, like, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of, like, op art and optical art and just, you know, psychedelic visuals um, that aren't, that aren't, like, tie-dye stuff. Um, yeah, you know, like that... Uh, I mean that also kind of like that also kind of ties into like the law of repetition and, and dance music. And if you're, I mean, sure, all, all of you have been in, a, you know, at a rave or a nightclub, and and you actually like you get um, hypnotized by the the, the law of repetition. Um, so visually, things like that, patterns, um, and then of course just aesthetics, like you know, um, I guess it also has to do with your generation or what you remember as a kid. So like neon and you know, things floating. <laughs> All those things that are coming back now. We were, yeah. we were talking about nostalgia earlier. And yeah. um, 
And what do you do when you get stuck? Like, I think part of the creative process is just continuing to work even when you get stuck, like, or when you're facing creative block. How do you overcome that? Um, you, you get, you stop. You, yeah. And you just take a, take a walk, take a bike ride. Like there's, a, there's a, a number of things I think you can, you can program yourself to do. Eat something. You know, yeah. That always works. I go to the yeah. kitchen. I'm like, hmm, what do we have? <laughs> I need a snack. Um, so I know you're currently working on a few projects. You have, uh, you're working on your third full-length solo album. You just scored a film, and you're working on a collaboration with your brother, I right. think. So you tell us a little bit about each of those. Um, sure. The film is called Ghost Trio, and it's um, it's based originally it was based on the, the Mozart piece, but essentially it's it's. It's. I would say it's in the ballpark of like uh, very influenced by David Lynch, and um, I've I've known the director for a while, and um, we it's you know it's always a, a long uh, as you as you guys know it's like you can start working on a movie in 2013 or 14, and then it hits it by the time it hits a festival it's 2016. So he he submitted it to a bunch of festivals. We did a whole bunch of revisions. We we definitely trimmed the fat, and um, it's mo there's not much dialogue, which is kind of cool and and other people who've, who've scored stuff said i i had like a, a a dream because there was no i didn't have to deal with any dialogue or you know <laughs> replacing dialogue so it's more almost like you know just um lots of ambient soundscapes and um yeah nice and when does the new album i know i don't want to put pressure because i know how it is when you're working on a project sure. but is there like a tentative release date or kind um, of like a, no. a goal in mind no just working no i mean i would love for it to come out in 2017 um i'm just you know more chipping away every day that's like the best the best thing you can do with i think with uh, when you're working on an album just but when i go into the mode i like it's definitely like turn off the phone like i'm yeah chip away at the album and then the other project the collaboration with your brother collaboration okay. with my brother is basically my brother runs he like he started a skateboard magazine out of his dorm room he's he's 10 years younger than me and uh he started out of his dorm room and it's really taken off you know and um i think it's it's taken off larger more so more than he thought and it's kind of like he's he, one of the um elevator pitches for the magazine is like he's the voice of the streets he's he's kind of like the people's voice um there's when he does interviews it's there's no holds barred and so then some of the pro skateboarders have turned his magazine and be like, all right, they've been like, all right, Nike's bullying um, local skate shops. This is why, this is how, the mechanics of it. And those, some of those articles have, you know, reached into other, um, your gawkers and, and whatnot. So he is starting, um, I, what I encouraged him to do in the, from the beginning was, um, you guys know how the fader has the fader mix. And I was like, we'll start a SoundCloud and have like, have professional skateboarders um, curate mixes, <clears throat> and so that that took off, and he got like um, like Tony Hawk's son Riley Hawk did a uh, did this great psychedelic rock mix, and um, and if they can't mix if they can't mix it, we just tell them to send us a playlist, and we we'll, we kind of blend it together, um, and then he, I was like, well, we need to because um, he's always putting up video content. I was like, let's start a record label, and and just sign. You know, some of these skaters are are making great music, and so we're in the process of putting together a compilation, and it's kind of for skaters by skaters, um, and it's it's like it's definitely uh, what's the word? Yeah, it's just it's it's a lot. It's time consuming. Yeah, you're you're like the best big brother ever. Yeah, I mean, well, it's also like <laughs> no. And I mean, I you know, I love I love my brother to death, and like I I I obviously I would always mess with skate. He's you know I'd mess with skateboarding when I was a kid, but it was just like there's only so many things you can do, and yeah. And you chose music. Yeah. So I have one last question for you. Um, I think music has this power to kind of transform us or take us out of. It, it, you know, when you're listening to a song, sometimes and you transcend, like even just for the duration of the song, you forget about that really shitty work day you had or problems you're dealing with or whatever. Um, what what do you hope to convey through your music or what do you hope people feel when they listen to your music? Oh, just, I mean, the number one thing I can hope is like people forget their problems and just escape. Kind of like when, when I listen to My Bloody Valentine and like that's like the first thing that comes to mind that I've heard over, you know, so many times in every format 
available probably. Um, and it's just my way of like just completely dreaming and escaping and n not even worrying. It doesn't matter what year it is. It doesn't matter where you are, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Um, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, Mitch, now everyone. Okay, if you've ever heard a podcast before, you've likely heard of MailChimp. But it really is true, MailChimp is the easiest way to send email newsletters. If you're looking to connect with an audience or grow your creative business, you've got to give MailChimp a try. It's easy to set up, it's easy to use, there are flexible design options that make it so simple to create a great looking campaign. And let's say you're putting on an event in Chicago and you only want to email people that are from Chicago. MailChimp's powerful automation and segmentation tools make this easy with just a few clicks. Plus, with MailChimp's mobile app, you can manage lists, add new subscribers, send campaigns, and view reports all while on the go. Getting started with MailChimp could not be easier. No expiring trials, no contracts, no credit card required. Just sign up and start emailing now. Go to MailChimp.com to create your free account today. Thank you, MailChimp, for supporting the Great Discontent Podcast. Now back to the show. Okay, guys, it's time for guest number two, and I think she has a fan club in this first couple rows. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so our, our second guest tonight is a Brooklyn-based stylist known from the TLC series What Not to Wear and Love, Lust, or Run. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Truth About Style, and has appeared on various national TV shows, including Today, Oprah, and The View. And tonight, TGD Live. She is currently a style correspondent for The Rachel Ray Show, a contributor to Refinery29, and she's covering the red carpet season for Access Hollywood. She sits on the board of Glam for Good, The List, I Am That Girl, and The Jed Foundation. Please welcome Stacey London. I also um, mixed a song on GarageBand called <laughs> I Have a Big Red House. I'll play that for you later. <laughs> Sorry, I left that out of the bio. Yeah, it's okay. Um, so Stacy, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, so I want to talk to you about your story, and let's start at the beginning. Um, you grew up in New York. I did. You did. Grew up in Manhattan. Um, how was creativity expressed during your early years? Uh, finger painting, basically. Uh, I don't know that. You know, I I don't know that I was incredibly creative as a child. I think that I uh, wanted to be. I think that I uh, I definitely wanted to be a dancer. Um, I begged my mom for a year to take me to ballet. And the first day after a year of begging that she finally took me, I walked in and I see all these little girls in leotards leaping and dancing, and I was like, "Where are the tutus?" And this lovely teacher said to me, no, 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 tutus are for recitals, not rehearsal. And I was like, I'm out. <laughs> so I didn't have a whole lot of creative motivation as a kid. I'm not really, to be totally honest. Okay, so let's talk about college years, because I know you studied literature and philosophy. I did. Right? I so did. at that point, what were you thinking in terms of career and was fashion or styling even... On your radar? Yeah. Well, I would say, okay, so in between leaving ballet, <clears throat> you know, my, my burgeoning dance career and college, um, there was a lot that sort of happened in between that made me very interested in fashion, um, probably for all of the wrong reasons. And now I look back on that as something that I think was probably what led me to the right thing. But I got very sick. I had a skin disease um, and I was covered in scales and kids are not very nice when you're young. And I just used to pray every night, um, you know, take my teeth, uh, I'll gain 60 pounds, just, just make my skin clear because it never seemed like that was going to happen. And it finally did um, after uh, like lots of trial and error and lots of different drugs. And um, I think it was about that time at around 16 that I started to gravitate towards fashion. And I couldn't say at that time that that was specifically why I gradu graduated towards fashion or gravitated towards it, but I think it was really because I wanted something perfect. I wanted something shiny and beautiful that I never felt that I could be. Um, and so I got very interested in fashion, um, but I knew I didn't want to be a designer because I can't sew and had no interest in learning to. Um, so 
you know, my dad was a college professor and he said to me, don't go to college for a career. Go to college to learn how to think, how to write, how to speak eloquently, um, how to be critical of work and understand that not everything that's presented to you, you should be presented as truth. Um, you should question everything. So, of course, I went in and was like, fine, then I'm going to not major in anything. <laughs> I'm going to make my own major and make everybody's life difficult. Um, but I studied philosophy, psychology, and literature, knowing full well that I wanted to go, oh, hi, I didn't even know you were here, um, full well knowing that I wanted to go into, into fashion. So uh, during the summers, I did internships one at Christian Dior in Paris, and I worked at magazines and things like that. So um, even before I graduated from college, I had an interview at Vogue, uh, and then I wound up working there right after college. Yeah. It, Vogue is your first job out of college. I mean, that seems like dream job, right? But uh, <laughs> reality. Yeah, it seems that way. But <laughs> one would think like, oh, I made it. When I first got there, I was a little bit annoyed that I'd gone to college. You know, because nobody there knew anything academic. So I would say, like, Nietzsche, and they'd be like, what was his last collection like? You know, I was like, we are not from the same universe. And then I was annoyed because I was like, if I had just come to Vogue when I was 18, I would be running the place by now. You know, I mean, I just, I was annoyed about the whole college experience. I, I actually wound up being grateful uh, for it later on, <laughs> not then. Um, but I also, when I interviewed for the job at Vogue, I was um, in the throes of a massive eating disorder my, my senior year of college. And I had, you know, decided that I wanted to lose 10 pounds to be ready to be in fashion. And I lost 60 and I was 90 pounds. And uh, 89, I guess, at my lowest. I'm 5'7". That's, you know, pretty thin. And within a year of interviewing and getting that job, I had doubled my weight. So I was a size 16. Um, I think the only fashion assistant at Vogue before or since to be 180 pounds. And so it was even harder because I felt like to compensate for not being a double zero, I had to be incredibly funny and I had to work three times as hard, which I did. I actually worked for three different editors. Um, and so I really kind of put myself through it. Um, and I think it also started this theme for me about what it's like to feel disconnected and alienated from other people. I always felt different. Um, from the skin disease on, I think that there was this sense that I wasn't normal. Uh, and at every turn, I sort of, if I, didn't, if I didn't already seem that way, I somehow sabotaged myself into feeling that way, um, which was a little tricky. Um, you know, I think it was it was partly that that feeling alien felt familiar and to try and fit in or to try would mean having to admit to failing. And I didn't want to do that. So it was very easy for me to just kind of rest in that area of being not normal and not OK. And that took a long time for me to get over. And so um I want to talk about that in a minute, but just in terms of timeline of your story, like you, you spent some years at Vogue and then you went on to... Um... I did. I went on to assist uh, very briefly the fashion director at Mademoiselle when it was like super hip and trippy and it was like when all like the English photographers like um, Glenn Lutchford and David Sims, Mario Sorrenti and grunge was sort of at its, its height um, and it was so cool. You know, that, that was actually the first time, even uh, being a bigger girl, I felt uh, much more connected to fashion, um, much more interested. I felt my opinion was valued. And then I went freelance because that magazine uh, shit the bed really fast because it was just too edgy for its time. Um, but it was a magical time to be there. And it was an incredible bunch of creatives. Doug Lloyd was the art director. Gabby DePelt was the editor-in-chief. It was an incredible moment in fashion history. Um, I left and then I, I basically became the world's best fashion assistant. I went around and worked with every editor and every stylist uh, that would hire me. I got to work with Avedon and with Stephen Meisel and Bruce Weber. Um, I mean, there just wasn't a, a situation that I didn't get to experience as an assistant. 
And at some point I was like, well, either I'm going to be that assistant who gets like $100,000 a year, you know, is hired by all the top stylists and never does anything else with her life. Or I stop taking assistant jobs and I wait till somebody will let me style something, um, which was that six months where my dad had to pay my rent. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, you know, the decision to go freelance in the world of fashion, I don't know if that was a big, if a lot of people were doing that. I feel like there's so many people freelancing right now. Back then, I don't know if that was... It wasn't as big, obviously, mm -hmm. because w this was pre-digital. So, you know, print was king. I mean, if you worked at a magazine, you didn't go freelance. Um, but a lot of freelancers were smart. You know, they realized that they had the ability to make a lot more money doing ad campaigns and being associated with the magazine. So if you looked at mastheads at that time, it was editor at large, which really allowed them the freedom to do campaigns while also having the freedom to do editorial, which in turn is why advertisers were hiring them. Um, because in that day and age, editorial, what was the thing that was creative and advertising was that you were, you know, you were working for the man, you were writing, you know, you were shooting pictures of sneakers for Nike and it wasn't cool. Um, it took a while before advertising to become as cool as editorial and in some cases even cooler. So how did you make the transition from Working at a, you're working at a magazine, then you're freelancing as an assistant. At what point are you a stylist? It's a good question. I mean, in this day and age, all you have to do is go start taking pictures of people that you dress on Instagram. <laughs> but back then, um, I had to wait. And a photographer that I had worked with at Vogue who remembered me and was, like, so kind um, was like, oh, my God, you were that fat chick at Vogue. And I was like, oh, yeah, that was me. <laughs> yes. He was like, well, you know, uh, we're starting a new magazine. Um, it's for uh, La Repubblica in Italy owns it. It's called D. Uh, they need a New York ma uh, fashion editor. Uh, uh, Fabian Barron was the original uh, art director. And then he brought in one of his protégés to really run the magazine. And I said, sure, hey, yeah. And this dude, Wayne Mazur gave me my first photo shoot. And then I started working for them on the regular. And then I got a phone call from a friend who'd been an assistant of another famous photographer, Sheila Metzner. Sheila Metzner's son, Raven, was friends with my friend Carrie from high school. They went to Skidmore together, whatever. That's a long story you don't need to know. But Raven called me and said, my sister was just promoted to fashion director at a new Mademoiselle, different editor-in-chief. Um, she's looking for a senior fashion editor to replace her. I think you guys would get along swell. Why don't, why don't you go and meet her? I did. I met the editor-in-chief, and I met with Evan, and it was like we got on like a house on fire, and I got the job. So uh, at 26, I became the senior fashion editor for Mademoiselle um, for four years, and it was the most narcissistic, most materialistic, most vain point in my life. Um, I would go to Milan a day early to make sure I had all the new shoes from Prada before anybody else did. And I would go to Paris and go to places like, you know, nobody knew of, uh, you know, Claudie Merlot or, or Stella Cadente, and, and maybe you still don't. Um, but they were not readily available brands, you know, like Isabelle Morant is now. Um, and I would go and I would get everything just to make sure all of those Japanese photographers wanted to shoot me when I was walking into a show. It was like a dream. I don't know. After a while, it got a little bit vapid and boring. And then the most amazing, amazing thing happened was that I got fired. Yeah. And uh, I, it was actually, it was the, I really recommend that all of you do it because I, um, don't fire anybody. I mean, get fired. But it, but it was uh, when I realized something uh, pretty significant about myself was that I had been very lazy in my choices. Um, getting to be an editor at Condé Nast meant I got a 401k and I got car rides home late at night and I was bored out of my mind. But I was so afraid to leave that kind of security behind, having no idea what I wanted to do, um, that I just stayed there. I stayed two years too long. And uh, getting fired woke me up. And I really, I wandered around for about a year. 
I, I designed an entire clothing collection that was based on all of my favorite childhood items uh, that I thought was really going to take off. And I was going to start looking for investors. And I was freelance. I mean, I had a, an agent. I sort of saw the writing on the wall when a new editor-in-chief came into Mademoiselle. I, I kind of figured she was going to get rid of everybody. So I did get a styling agent. Uh, so I was a freelance stylist and I was doing, I was working with men then and I was working with kids and then I started working with real people for things like bank ads and stuff like that. So I, w I had a pretty well-rounded kind of styling uh, background at that point and my stylist agent called me and said, um, do you want to interview for a television show? Which was like basically like going like having a college degree and being asked to go back to junior college I mean like it was looked down upon so much in the magazine industry that uh it was like oh gosh you kind of failed as a fashion editor to go to television but I was like whatever <laughs> I'm bored and I'm not making it that much money so yeah sure why not I'll go I had no idea what it was for. I didn't, I, I didn't know BBC, ABC, TLC, TNT. I had no idea. They made me watch um, the original version of What Not to Wear, which was two women from Britain, uh, Trini and Susanna. I thought they were stupid, and they kept touching each other's boobs, and it was idiotic. And I couldn't imagine how that was going to translate into an American show at all. Um, and four screen tests and eight months later... I got the job, which was surprising. And I think that's, I mean, that was what, 2003 or something? That was when I first... 2002, 2002 yeah. 2002, okay. That, that was when I first heard of Stacey London. I was back in Michigan in the Midwest watching TLC marathons on Saturday morning or whatever um, in my pajamas. I was not dressed well <laughs> on <laughs> my worry, couch. It, it wasn't watching. two-way. I couldn't see you. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I know because there's always this... Right. You had this persona of like, ooh, if I see Stacy on the street, is she going to say something to me? Um, maybe she would. Yeah. Maybe in those first few years, I probably would have because I took my that persona very seriously. You took your job very. Well, I yeah. was worried. It was that, you know, I took that job very seriously for the same reason that I was uh, I gravitated towards fashion. Right. It's all insecurity. I wanted to be viewed as an expert. And I was afraid that if, you know, I was like not you know, making fun of what you were wearing or if I allowed you to make fun of me that somehow I was undermining my own authority. And it took me a long time to get out of that shit and like take myself a little less seriously. Um, so I used to get very upset about it. Uh, you know, if I wasn't like regarded with a certain amount of respect that somehow I'd done something wrong. Um, which was as much a persona as like, you know, wanting the best shoes from Prada. It was just all artifice. And I do think that, you know, it was kind of interesting to learn a professional skill set to dress people and to dress them well, to make them look great and, uh, you know, know how to fit a body with my personal set of, you know, very severe, very deep insecurities. Um, which is why, you know, even though I joke about what not to wear, it was the best thing to ever happen to me because uh, not only did television sort of become the next iteration of what magazines were giving, they brought fashion, it brought fashion to the people um, in a way that made it theirs and not this exclusive world that you couldn't be a part of. But it also taught me to be very compassionate and empathetic with people who loathed themselves a lot the way I did. And for me to be able to be kind to them, in turn, I had to learn to be a whole lot kinder to myself, a lot gentler. Yeah. Um, well, you just answered my question about your time at What Not to Wear. Um, and that season lasted for, for about 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. Yeah, That's 10 a years. really long time. A really long time. <laughs> I will say that um, I... I, again, looking back, I quit what not to wear. Um, they were going to continue the show without me and chose not to after, I think, looking at the fiscal value of it. Um, but the reason that I quit was that I just completely burned myself out. 
Um, while I was shooting Whatnot to Wear, um, those last four years, I was doing four campaigns uh, for different on-air um, endorsement deals. I wrote a book. I was the editor-in-chief of a magazine for Westfield Malls, which I wrote and basically styled the entire thing twice by myself. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. And um, I was working for the Today Show. I was working for Access Hollywood. I just basically blew a gasket. And I started to get really tired all the time and I started to gain weight. I started to hurt all the time. I mean, and it wasn't like I was, you know, exercising and then shooting 14 hours a day. I could barely get through a day. Um, and this time I decided don't be lazy, you know, in television land, what not to wear was sort of a tent peg show for TLC and it would have been easy to stay there for a very long time. I chose not to because I was like, don't make the same mistake you made at Mademoiselle. But also because I knew that something was wrong. And I, I couldn't, it took me a year to figure out that I had psoriatic arthritis. Um, I thought I had lupus. I mean, I had no idea what was going on. And it was bad enough that I was like, no, no job is worth this. And in 10 years, I think we did enough. <laughs> I feel like at that point, if you didn't get it, you can watch the reruns. Is it on Netflix? I don't know. I think it's still on Netflix. Yeah. I don't know. Is it? I, don't, I think it's still on Netflix. I don't know. Don't watch the first couple of seasons because my dressing sucked. Okay. You guys got that. Um, so it sounds like at some point there was an aha moment where you like redefined your definition of success. Um, at what point? do you think that was and how did your definition of success or succeeding change for you? Like it started to look differently, right? Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, lately I've been talking a lot about this, um, the difference between success and fulfillment. And I think that I got to the point where I was like, I've, I've, I've done it. I've, I've done something successful. Um, whatever I go on to do next may be as successful, less successful, more successful, but I need to feel fulfilled. I want a life that includes um, more close relationships. A lot of my friends hadn't seen me in years, literally. My family felt very um, disconnected from me. I just, I felt, again, very isolated at a place in my life where I didn't need to be other. I didn't need to be isolated anymore. And I wanted more connection. Um, so for me, leaving the show was hard. And I remember that last weekend, even though it was my choice, I was like crying on the phone to a friend saying like, well, who am I if I'm not this show? It's all I'm ever going to be known for. It's all I'm ever going to be remembered for. And then it was like, well, so what? It's not me anymore. It's like trying to wear a jacket that doesn't fit. So, you know, whatever came next, I wasn't really sure what it was going to be in terms of success for me, but it was certainly about finding a different kind of fulfillment um, that required a lot less external validation and much more um, internal peace, I guess. Um, do you think, are there specific questions that we can ask ourselves to, to help ourselves think about how we define success and how, you know, just to evaluate these types of things earlier on, I guess, instead of? Uh, no, <laughs> I'm going to be really honest. I, I wish I could say it's like, you know, you can, you'll just, you, you feel it in your bones or you have to ask yourself, like, is this shoe and this paycheck more important than like hugging my dad. You know, I, I don't know that everybody feels the way I felt. I don't know that, I think that the definition for success and fulfillment is actually something, not only do you um, sort of verbally define for yourself, you, you, it's visceral. You feel when you know what your success level is or you know when you feel fulfilled. And in the best case scenario, it, especially in the creative process, it's both. You feel both successful and fulfilled. Um, for me, what I did on television started off feeling creative and then it started to feel rote. I could do it with my eyes closed. I could do it with my hands tied behind my back. And I wasn't enjoying how easy it was. And for me, that just, you know, externally, I guess there was a lot of success and there were a lot of big paychecks, like 
you know, why would I, I couldn't believe that I got to do Pantene commercials. You know, I'm like a Sicilian Jew from New York. Like who does Pantene commercials when I was 40? Um, that was all great, but that's not, that's not all of me. I think that was the second iteration of me. Magazines was the first and I'm, I'm kind of working on the third. Yeah. I was going to ask, it's like you're in this, this new Renaissance now you're, you are working on, um, a lot of different projects. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what you're currently focused on and, and yeah. what you're going on? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I like to say it's a midlife renaissance because <laughs> who wants to say it's a breakdown? <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, I, I woke up after What Not to Wear and I was like, who that, what the hell is digital and who the hell are all these bloggers? What the <laughs> fuck is a blogger? Excuse me, but I was like, I don't even understand what they do or what kind of expertise they have or anything like that. Um, and then I realized that, oh, that doesn't matter because that's, that's not the age that we're in. And I had to take a really long, hard look at digital um, to understand it. And I'm not even sure that I do, to be totally honest. But what I do understand is that it's changed the way that we perceive time. Um, certainly because immediacy is the new black. And if Anna Wintour can watch a show the same time that you can, live streamed, that doesn't give her a whole lot of power. Um, that certainly doesn't make it possible for her to dictate to us the way that she did about what's in and what's out and who's hot and who's not. Um, and what I learned about blogging was something actually much more important, that we have passed the stage of television how-to, Television how-to required experts. Um, we are no longer in that phase. We are in a phase of um, shared experience. You don't need expertise to have experience. So we went from a how-to generation to a me-too generation. And people want to see themselves reflected and echoed into what they see and what they hear, um, which is one of the most important things, I think, about sort of millennials. Because I can say shit tons of shit about millennials, but that's not really what I'm interested in doing. What I find most interesting is their demand for transparency and their demand to see um, themselves reflected in all of their glory. So in terms of moving the needle in terms of gender identity and sexuality and, and uh, body shape and, and race and diversity, all of that to me has been uh, one of the biggest strides, one of the biggest advances that digital and, and uh, the millennial era has given us. Um, and one that I think that's really important to push forward. So mush forward is really what I was going to say. Mush <laughs> forward. Um, so, you know, I don't know exactly where my place is in that. I'm not a millennial and, and I believe in experience, but I also believe in expertise. And so when young people come up to me and say, they, I want to be like you when I grow up, I'm like, like what me? Like which me are you talking about? Because... Um, if you're talking about, like, being on television, you should chat with Kim Kardashian, though I give her a lot of credit for changing our ideal body shape, right? I grew up with Kate Moss, so it's different. Um, but if you want to understand what it learns, what it means to learn a craft, then yes. Then yes, I'd love to mentor you or talk to you about what it's like to learn to do something. Um, I worry that everybody thinks that they're good at something because they can do it quickly, and to me, there's a big difference. So I guess to answer your question, what I've been doing now is writing. I've been writing a lot. Um, and I wrote a piece recently in Refinery29 about aging and about style um, and sort of what that means to me. And I was really surprised because it went viral so quickly. Um, and not just with women who are in their 40s. Uh, you know, it went viral with just across the board with women. And I thought that it was so interesting that so many women were thinking about these types of things and not talking about them. And so I now want to write a book about it and really open up that conversation. Yeah, I know that I read that piece and it really resonated with me. I actually want to read a portion of it tonight. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> for for those of you that didn't read it, um, it's kind of a lengthy quote here. But, oh, okay. And uh, story time, guys. Um, so yeah, in the article Stacy was just referencing, uh, she said, I'm in my late 40s. I'm ready for the kind of uniform that empowers and emboldens. Not the me people may know from TV and not the me from 20 years ago. 
My style doesn't have to have a context yet, just like my value in society doesn't. It is all evolving, and it all remains to be seen. But I own who I am when I walk into a room, and it is only age that has given me the privilege to feel that. What 32-year-old me could never have known is that growing older is such a gift. Age has mellowed many of my insecurities because the pressure is no longer on me. At 47, I'm finding that my trouser pockets are filled with fewer and fewer fucks. That's been the most quoted line from that entire article. But um, just to give it some context, I talk about myself in the article as an evolutionary woman. Um, in the sense that I'm the first generation of woman that uh, was raised by a frontline feminist who burned her bra and did all that stuff. But um, she did get married and have kids first and then found the job of her dreams. And I can literally only check off that last box, right? I didn't get married. I didn't have kids. All the traditional markers by which we tend to value women um, at certain stages of their lives are kind of absent in my life. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm very proud of my career and what I've done But, you know, there is still this uh, sense that there's more that I should have done. Why did I give up the idea of getting married? Why didn't I have kids? You know, this concept of, sure, you can have it all. In my opinion, you can't. I think you you have to make decisions um, based on what works for you. Uh, Or you have to have a lot of help, (laughs) you know, one or the other. But... um, But I am also, I was raised to be an independent person. My mother was like, don't don't depend on men for money. Go out and make your own. You know, don't depend on relationships to know who you are. Figure it out for yourself. And in a lot of ways, you know, that was very helpful advice. And in a lot of ways, it goes against all sociobiology and uh, left me completely confused. Like, am I supposed to like somebody? Am I supposed to date and get married or not? Is that somehow breaking this kind of new code of feminist honor? Um, And so I had a lot of trouble, I think, as I was growing up with intimacy. I I wasn't sure what was allowed and what wasn't. Um, And there were a lot of times where I hated feeling like I was so independent and I wanted somebody to lean on, but at the same time didn't know what to ask for without feeling like I was being somehow needy. So it's a very, for me, it was a very conflicting generation to grow up in. And I know more and more women like myself, but a lot of women my age did get married and did have kids. And I have great friends who are that age, but I don't have tons in common with them. So a lot of my friends are younger. And because of that, it's added this very weird layer to the fact that I'm not the age that they are. In fact, a lot of them are the age that I was when I started out in television, like early 30s. Um, And yet I have so much more in common with them in some way. And yet I know I'm not. So it's this, I can't, I don't act my age, but I can't stop from aging. And I don't want to. I want to be able to wear age as a badge of honor. And we're the only value that really doesn't seem to do that. You know, we're the only society that doesn't seem to do that very well, particularly with women. Men can be George Clooney. Women just turn into witches and trolls. Um, and I would prefer to be, well, maybe I, I don't mind being a witch, but I do prefer, I, I would prefer not to be a troll. Um, so I, I, lo- I just love that you took a, a stance. This is almost, you know, the article is almost like a manifesto like peeling off the layers of all of the expectations and the years co-hosting what not to wear and, and just everything everyone has expected um, from you and, and about who you are. And, and I love that. And I think that's why it resonated so much with everyone, not just people who are in your generation. But I know for me, I, w- I was like, this is amazing. Yes, yes, yes. I'm in green. I'm nodding as I'm reading all of it. Um, and I think that pressure that pressure goes beyond just what you were talking about in the article. I think that pressure is something that we feel in general, like in terms of who we are as, as people, but also in our careers um, or as we're creating, like there's so much pressure to do things a certain way or compare ourselves with others or just to succeed, you know, whatever, whatever that means. Right, whatever the definition of yeah, success it's, it's different is for everyone. in a capitalist society. Yeah, and so I guess I'm wondering, do you have any advice or insight for people who are feeling pressure to be a certain person or succeed in a certain way? Um, well, I, I guess 
you know, I again, I would say everything is individual for everybody, but I think the less expectation you can have and the more anticipation you can have, um, it really changes the game. So the goal uh, doesn't have to be so defined. It's that you just want to go somewhere, right? I, I said in my book, um, the, in the Truth About Style, uh, if you don't take a step, the path will never appear. And so for me, it's that if you wait around for the perfect opportunity or you only think that there's one version of success in your life, you won't get anywhere because life doesn't work like that. It, it you know, is going to throw you tons of curveballs. And the idea is to be able to evolve into each iteration of yourself, um, even if it feels strange at first, in, even if it feels other. And I think that one of the reasons that um, the article did resonate was, A, you know, it was giving people permission to be who they are instead of who they think they need to be. But, you know, more specifically, I was shocked by the amount of women, particularly in their 30s, who were telling me that they're under so much pressure to freeze their eggs if they haven't met the right person, right? You know, oh, you know, my doctor keeps asking me every time I go for a pap smear if I should freeze my eggs, like, now. I mean, that's a lot of pressure, you know? And that's also an expectation. Um, my feeling is that, you know, there are a lot of things that we think that we're supposed to do in our lives. And, you know, being on the other side of 40, I can tell you a lot of the things that I didn't do just doesn't matter. But I think that it is always, um, I say this about style and I would say this about life, is a question of self-awareness. The more you know who you are at the moment that you are that person, the easier it's going to be to take that next step, whether it's straight or, you know, you've been going straight and you realize all of a sudden it's time to take a hard right. You just know because you know who you are and what is going to fulfill you. Um, and usually what fulfills you gives you some kind of success. I, I do think that fulfillment is much more important. Chase the, chase the passion, not the money. You know, if it was to, if I was to be giving advice about work, but it's about listening to yourself and about, you know, knowing, like absolutely understanding on a visceral level, what feels good, what feels right, what feels honest and true and transparent. I don't remember most of my twenties because I was pretending so hard to be somebody I'm not that I just literally don't remember them. It took me a long time to understand what millennials sort of have inherently said, you know, since they've started, like, see me as I am. So that's what I would say. Is that an answer? I don't know. The sound guy's walking away. It is. It's a... <laughs> it was so good. We'll take it that, from here. Yeah. Uh, no, no, that was great. Um, and I think... <laughs> The thing, the thing is, like, you know, from the story you've shared about your path and from other people I've spoken to is that it, it's never ending, right? That evolution, that transformation, um, it's always happening. And I think you can either kind of lean into it um, or you can resist it. But I think it's going to happen either way, right? You're going to choose to leave a job or you're going to get fired or something's going to happen. And, and I yeah. think you have to... I mean, hopefully try to embrace that change head on and and confront it as you plan for the next season. Yeah, and I don't know that you can always plan. I, I'll be honest. I think the, the thing that um, stops people, well, there are two things that stop people from doing anything, um, and I think it's fear and shame. And uh, shame is something that we are slowly eradicating from, um, you know, sort of general society. I mean, like, you know, uh, whatever. If you, like, kill small children, maybe you have some shame. Or maybe you don't, and that's why you... Anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that metaphor. Let me just, let me just, let me Can just we cut that out. We'll cut that out Shame of the audio. Shame is less of an issue right now because I think there's a lot more about our society and our, our ourselves that we accept, right? I think that's fair to say. Um, but I think fear stops us from doing everything. Fear of the unknown is just like, it's like why we're afraid to die because we don't know what it's like on the other side. You know, I just, those are the things that um, I think are get in our way. And it really isn't a question for me of why. It really is a question of why not. I mean, you're going to be afraid no matter what. So just do it. 
like learning to live with fear is one of the greatest gifts that I, I can imagine having is because, you know, that's what else is courage except being afraid and doing it anyway. So for me, it's never about, um, well, you know, just go with it. It's, it's about acknowledging how hard it is to go with something. It's about acknowledging the fact that it's very difficult to let go of expectation. It's very difficult to let go of comparison. Those things um, are so hard. Um, and, and lately I've been looking a lot into sort of repression, like the repression of anger, anxiety, things that we do without actually being conscious that we're doing them. Um, you know, I encourage everybody like to know thyself is, is truly like the greatest gift of all, because you just can't go wrong if you're, if you're listening to your own head, heart and gut. That's great. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Uh, Stacey London, Pleasure. everyone. Thank you, guys. <laughs> this episode was produced by The Great Discontent and me, Benjamin Welch, with sound mixing by Ryan S. Maker. The Great Discontent features conversations with today's artists, makers, and risk takers. You can learn more at thegreatdiscontent.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating in iTunes. It really does help spread the word. Thanks so much for listening.